The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much that we have your word to illuminate our minds, that in the darkness of our thinking we have the pure light of your word that reveals to us all things. Father, we thank you that we can walk in the light of your word, and we pray that as we study it today that we would gain greater insights into your plans and purposes in history and your plans and purposes for individual believers. Father, we pray that we would be comforted, encouraged, strengthened, edified, As we study your word today, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to begin with to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 is we continue our study of these seven evaluation reports of these seven congregations. And in Revelation chapter 3.10, in the midst of the sixth evaluation report, that is the one to the church at Philadelphia, the Lord uses a particularly significant phrase, and this is what I'm expanding on. We've been covering this for about five weeks now, and we probably have at least a week or two more to go before we cover this. I've decided to put as much into this as possible that we can cover all the various details of this as we go through it. So we're discussing this topic of why we believe in a pre-tribulation Rapture. Now, Revelation 3.10 uses the phrase, I will keep you, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. That's a technical term for what we call the tribulation period, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. It's this phrase, keep you from the hour of trial, that is, is debated among scholars. Those who believe that the, that the church isn't raptured until after the tribulation. Uh, say that this really doesn't tell us anything. It's just a rather nebulous term. And so they, uh, so we spent some time talking about this Greek preposition. And I started off with this the last two or three weeks and had a couple of questions this week to just go back over the significance of this again to make sure everybody understands that. And example A on the left, this takes the idea of keeping you from something and the idea that you're in it but then you're taken out of something you're already in, or you are protected while you are within a certain environment. That's 
one way of handling uh, the preposition ek, and there are places where that is used in that way in the scriptures in some some contexts. But the primary use is represented by the example on the right side of the screen that keeping something from something means it never enters into it to begin with. See, the debate is this, that those who hold to a post-tribulation or even a mid-tribulation position believe that the ek, as I point out at the bottom of the left side, means out from within. The church-age believers remain in the tribulation, but they are protected from the wrath of God that's poured out during the tribulation. Aside from grammatical problems, I think that a weakness with that whole view is the the dimensions of the catastrophes that take place during the tribulation are of such a magnitude that you don't see that God would be specifically protecting church-age believers within that framework. But as I pointed out last time when we had our our little walkthrough up here on the stage and did a little live demo on what happens at the tribulation, that unless you have a pre-tribulation rapture, there is no one left at the end of the tribulation, no believers left at the end of the tribulation, with mortal bodies who can go into the millennial kingdom and marry and procreate and have children to populate the earth during the millennial kingdom. So the best example is to diagramming this this meaning of this preposition is that which is on the right side where ek means out from but not ever being within. So when the circle represents the tribulation, this means that being kept from it means that you never enter into it. Never enter the tribulation. Now, one verse that uses it this way, and I went through several, several weeks ago, is when Jesus is about to go to the cross. John chapter 12 comes after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's before they come together for the Lord's table. And he's talking to his disciples in anticipation of what's going to happen within the next two or three days. And he says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? And he prays, Father, save me from this hour. The this hour refers to the time period involving the cross when the sins of the, of the world were poured out upon him. During that time period when he would go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sin. The penalty for our sin is uh, foundationally spiritual death, that is the penalty, physical death, physical suffering, sickness, disease, all of these other things are consequences of spiritual death, that separation of Adam, the first man created from God, that the the unintended consequences are that it just fragmented and fractured the entire uh, universe. So Jesus says to the Father, save me from this hour. He doesn't want to enter into the hour at all. So he doesn't want to go into that circle of suffering whatsoever. So he's praying, Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, see the contrast there, but for this purpose I came to this hour. In his humanity, Jesus recognized the horrible suffering that he would be going through on the cross. And so in his humanity, he was going to have to suffer. And in his humanity... He is he he's, he. There's that temptation to draw back from the cross. This is why he, as it were, sweats blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
is that he's not just running to the cross in joyful anticipation of what he's going to accomplish there because he knows the pain, the suffering that is going to come upon him as the perfect unblemished Lamb of God that when he receives the imputation of our sins, the horrible suffering that he will go through beyond anything you and I could ever imagine. And so in his humanity, there was that hesitancy And he needed to depend upon God the Holy Spirit in order to sustain him through that horrible time. So this is just another grammatical example of what we're talking about in our passage in Revelation 3.10 that we are going to be kept from that uh, hour of testing. Now these two questions are the questions we're asking. First of all, what is the rapture? And secondly, when is the rapture? What and when? And we've defined the rapture several times as the resurrection of all dead church-age believers and the translation of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age before the tribulation begins. Jesus Christ will come in the clouds in the twinkling of an eye, which is about one one-thousandth of a second. Every uh, dead believer will be raptured and receive their resurrection body and then within that same one thousandth of a second just after they receive the dead believers uh, are resurrected then all living believers will be translated will go from this mortal body to an immortal body in, in a, a less than a thousandth of a second and then we will be with the Lord uh, forever 1 Thessalonians 4.16 is the key passage For the rapture, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. There's our word harpazo, translated rapturo in the Latin, where we get our word rapture, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. I keep pointing out that the purpose for studying prophecy is not to get all excited about what's happening right now and how does this war with Lebanon fit into the prophetic timetable and when is Jesus coming back, but to be encouraged and strengthened in the midst of any adversity or struggle or or difficulty that we're going through that God is still in control. God is the God of history, the God who controls history, including the history of our own lives, and he is the one who is working all things together for good. So then we come to the second question, which we began to answer last time. When is the rapture? And there's a lot of debate among theologians on this, and it's not always as simple as some people think it is. And some folks are always surprised when all they've ever heard is a teaching about a, a pre-trib rapture to realize that there are other, other theologians and pastors who believe something that's different. But there are reasons for that, and it's important for us as believers to understand these views and to know why we believe what we believe. And I keep referring to First uh, Peter 3.15, that we need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And that word hope in, in the Greek is a word that means a confident expectation. Now, an expectation is something that you're looking forward to in the future. So hope specifically carries with it that baggage of future hope, what you expect to happen to you in the future when you die. So 
more than anything else, when we answer that question, we should be able to explain a little bit about what we believe and why we believe it. So I pointed out in terms of definition, just to make sure everybody gets this. I know somewhere recently I read that geniuses need to hear things six times and the rest of us need to hear it about 30 times. And on a Sunday morning when we stayed up too late on Saturday night, we need to hear it 40 times. So rapture views. Pre-trib rapture, that means the rapture comes pre, I mean pre or before the tribulation. Then we have the uh, second view, and that is the partial rapture view. And this is the idea that the spiritual Christians get raptured, and those who are carnal, disobedient, out of fellowship, they're, they're going to get punished, and they have to go uh, through the tribulation, and they will be chastened and disciplined uh, by the tribulation. Then we have the mid-trib rapture view, which has the church going through the first part of the tribulation. And the rapture occurs in the middle at that three-and-a-half-year stage. The tribulation is seven years long. And at that three-and-a-half-year stage, believers are then raptured. They have to endure the first three-and-a-half years of wrath before the rapture occurs. Now, there's been a variation that's developed in the last uh, 15 years that's called the pre-wrath view. And this divides the, the tribulation not into three-and-a-half years and three-and-a-half years, but into uh, three-and-a-half, but the, divides the second half of the tribulation into a period that's about a year and three-quarters and a year and three-quarters. So what you end up with is a, a tribulation that's sort of like instead of mid-trib, it's three-quarter trib, that in this view, the wrath of God only comes during the last uh, year and a half of the tribulation, and it's just prior to that wrath that the church is raptured. But as I pointed out last time, uh, this is the, uh, we, we know that what happens after the rapture is the, is the uh, uh, wedding feast in heaven and the bride of Christ, the church, is joined with her master, the Lord, who is, who is uh, the bridegroom. And so in all of these views we have the church going through the tribulations, basically a form of abuse where the groom is going to beat up the, the bride before he marries her, and that just doesn't fit anybody's uh, view of good sense. Then we have the last view, the post-tribulation rapture view, the post-trib view that Christ comes post-tribulation or after the tribulation. So that's the key vocabulary and we usually hear people abbreviating these as pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, uh, rather than pronouncing all the words, uh, the lengthy words out. So that gives us our rapture views. And I pointed out last time basic reasons why the tribulation can't occur at the end, of, I mean, why the rapture can't occur at the end of the tribulation. Now, I want to go on this morning and give you more understanding of the background and scriptural foundation for a pre-trib rapture. We're going to build a house. That's what theology is. It's building a house, an edifice. Uh, you take various doctrines and you put them together. And if this uh, doctrine is true over here and that doctrine is true over there and this other doctrine is true here, then that means that you can come up with a conclusion just using the laws of logic. And if all of your premises are true because they come from the Scripture, then your conclusion must therefore also be true. 
And so we look at the basic foundation for the pre-trib rapture, and the ultimate foundation is on a literal interpretation of Scripture. Then we have the views of prophecy known as premillennialism, futurism, and then the distinction between Israel and the church. Don't get frustrated if you're trying to uh, copy down this whole chart. We're going to go back and go through this in detail. I'm just giving you the overall view here, and then we're going to take it apart one element at a time. The contrast between the comings, what happens with the, first, with the rapture is different from what happens at the second coming. Therefore, there must be an interval between the rapture and the second coming. We have the doctrine of imminency, which we've already covered about five weeks ago. The nature and purpose of the tribulation. The nature of the church, which means it wouldn't go through the tribulation. And then an understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in the current church age and why uh, that, that is different because we're told in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 that the restrainer, he who restrains evil, and that's the Holy Spirit in this age, is removed before the tribulation begins. So that means the Holy Spirit's out. Now, once you put all these things together, you come up with a uh, doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture, and it leads us to the application of spiritual growth, evangelism, and missions. It is on the basis of this doctrine and dispensational theology that much, much of missions in the last 150 years has uh, taken place and been, it's been motivated by this evangelism. All of the various different groups that have been involved in, in Jewish evangelism from uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's Ariel Ministries to Jews for Jesus to the American Board of Missions to the Jews, numerous other uh, agencies were motivated by the fact that they knew that God still had a plan for Israel, still had a plan for Jews, and that they needed to get the gospel to the Jews as much as to the Gentiles. It's a motivation for spiritual growth because we understand that the church is different from Israel and that you as a church-age believer have a different purpose, a different destiny, and a different future in the coming kingdom than a an Old Testament Jewish believer. And so that the spiritual life of the church age is geared towards preparing us so that we are we have the capacity to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom. And it is a spur to evangelism. So all of this grows out of an understanding of this very important doctrine. So let's start taking it apart element by element. First of all, literal interpretation. What do we mean by literal interpretation? Well, the best definition I've run across over the years is one that was used by a uh, Jewish uh, evangelist, a uh, Jewish believer by the name of David L. Cooper. He, had, uh, he was a pastor of uh, a young believer by the name of Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And uh, uh, Dr. Cooper did a tremendous amount of work in Jewish evangelism and in dispensations and the study of prophecy. And he came up with a very concise definition. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. In other words, when you read the Scripture and it's very clear, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, don't try to spiritualize that. When you read in the Old Testament that God was going to give a specific piece of land from the river of Egypt to the great river, 
that to, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Don't try to uh, spiritualize that land into heaven. Don't try to make that river, uh, the river Jordan, and, and somehow spiritualize it. We've all heard this, that when I die, I'm going to cross over the river Jordan and enter into the promised land. I mean, you hear that in, uh, in, in many spirituals. But that's not what these passages are talking about. Even uh, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, Stonewall Jackson, as he died, uh, makes this allusion in his final statement, let me cross over the river and uh, let me rest under the trees. I mean, that's an allusion to this whole amillennial, he was a good Presbyterian, this whole amillennial viewpoint that the land is is now heaven, that, that because the Jews rejected Christ, there's no more literal uh, promise there. So the definition is that when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning. See how many adjectives you're forced to use just because somebody always comes along in another five or ten years and, and figures out some way to get around whatever word you're using, and so you now you have to add another adjective to clarify it. So you, now we've got four here. Primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning. Literal meaning doesn't mean a wooden literalism. It doesn't mean we don't believe that there are figures of speech in the Bible. But figures of speech need to be indicated by both context and supported by other passages that use that figure of speech. I had some guy a few years ago, a former basketball player here in Houston, tried to tell me that the that uh, Isaiah 14 was a reference was not a reference to the fall of Satan that was all metaphor. And even though he was fairly bright, he had failed in his education to understand that that uh, metaphor has to be indicated by context, and you have to demonstrate from corollary, correlating passages that metaphor that it is metaphorical. You can't just impose that on the text because uh, it doesn't fit someone's theology. So, literal meaning is your primary way to go, and then you uh, add to it. Uh, then if, it's, if it doesn't fit the context or there's other elements, then you go in another direction. So we're to take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the what? Immediate context. See, it's just like real estate. You know the three laws of real estate? Location, location, location. See, it's context, context, context. Look at the location of the Scripture, what's going on around it. Uh, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages. So we compare Scripture to Scripture, and that's how we come to understand words. You don't just look at how a word is used in one passage. You look at uh, correlating passages. Where is this subject discussed in other places? And you compare and contrast those. And then axiomatic and fundamental truths. In other words, we, there, there's controls. You can't just go to one scripture and say, okay, I think it means this. You have to not only compare it with other scripture, but as you develop your theology from other passages and as you understand your, your, under, your, your doctrine, then you use that as a, as a guide, as a, as a fence as they, that sets the boundary so that you come over to this other passage per se and you think, well, it could mean this. Ah, if it meant that, that would contradict this passage, that passage, and this doctrine, and that doctrine. So obviously it can't mean that. That's what he's saying here in this definition. So when the plain sense of Scripture 
makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context, studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths, indicate clearly otherwise. Foundational. And this is, as Dr. Ryrie used to say, if you're not consistently applying the rule of literal interpretation, you're going to end up in amillennialism or postmillennialism or post-tribulationism. But that's why we believe that this is the foundation to understand uh, the pre-trib rapture and God's plan for the future. The next element in the foundation is premillennialism. And we went over this last time. This is the view that Jesus Christ is going to return before the millennial kingdom, that 1,000-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ, known as the Messianic kingdom, if you're looking at it from an Old Testament viewpoint, that Jesus Christ returns before the kingdom sets in. See, if you take the other view of amillennialism, there's no need for a rapture of the church because everything just ends when Jesus Christ comes back, period, over and out. The church is the kingdom. There's no literal thousand years anymore. It has, uh, it's just a term for the present age, and the messianic kingdom is now spiritual. See, they've departed from a literal interpretation of Scripture. Or postmillennialism, which sees the church bringing in the kingdom. And again, they, uh, they, use, they, they do not believe in a literal interpretation of that 1,000 years that's mentioned in Revelation chapter, chapter 20. So, premillennialism is necessary. You've got to think within that premillennial framework. The next thing is futurism. That futurism means that what we believe are prophecies in the Scripture. Matthew chapter 24, known as the Olivet Discourse, when the disciple says, say to Jesus now, what are going to be the signs of your coming? He's just announced at that point that the temple is going to be destroyed such that no stone is going to be left on top of another. And they say, well, then, okay, if you're going to die and you're going to leave, then, then what are going to be the signs of your coming? And so Matthew 24 explains the signs of the times that is related to the second coming, not the rapture. And so we believe that's yet future. We believe that Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation uh, chapter 22 are all future events. None of this describes something historical or something that is going on today. Now there's three views I pointed out last time. I just want to help you lock in this vocabulary. One view that's become very popular in recent years is called preterism, just from a Latin word meaning past. In other words, it's already happened. All that happened. That was just symbolic terminology, all that talk in Matthew 24 and Revelation. That is just symbolic language to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. All that happened except for maybe the chapters, uh, chapter 20 through 22 in Revelation. That's future. Although there are a few... Uh, people who are what they call full preterists who believe that we're living in the new heavens and the new earth. What do they do with no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain? They must be living on a morphine cloud. Uh, historicism. Historicism is the idea that that Revelation 4 through 19 
describes what's going on throughout the church age period. So we can go in and kind of figure out where we are, pick the sign of the time. You, you, you saw stuff like this during the period of the, uh, uh, even the Revolutionary War. George III was the Antichrist. They were very, that was very popular during the period of the American uh, War for Independence for pastors to identify George III as the Antichrist. See, that's a historicist interpretation. You can find yourself somewhere in Revelation. But you see, we would say, no, you can't identify the Antichrist if you're a church-age believer because the Antichrist isn't revealed until after the rapture. So we're not looking now for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. We're looking for the blessed hope of his return in the clouds for the church to take us to heaven. So we hold to a futurist view of prophecy that this, all these things are yet to come and we anticipate them. So once again, just a review of our basic foundation. And then the distinction between Israel and the church. This is so foundational. We're not Jews. We're not under the Mosaic law. There is a distinction. This is something that the uh, apostles wrestled with in the book of Acts is just exactly what is the the, the relationship of church-age believers, of uh, Gentiles now who are coming to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. What's their relationship to the Mosaic Law? What's happened to the Mosaic Law? Are they supposed to be, are they supposed to be circumcised or not? Uh, do they have to enter into all of the ritual? Just exactly what is our relationship? Do they have to follow the dietetic laws? And that was part of the background to the epistle to the, to the Galatians because there were Judaizers. These were, were believers who taught that, that, that Gentiles had to come in under, under all the Jewish laws, and they were following along behind Paul. And after Paul taught the gospel and folks got saved and they were starting to learn the word, these Judaizers came along after them and said, yeah, yeah, you got part of the gospel, but now we've got the full gospel. And the full gospel is you have to enter into the Mosaic law if you want all the full blessings of, of uh, the spiritual life. This was the backdrop to the first council in church history uh, discussed in in uh, Acts chapter, I think it's Acts chapter uh, 13, called the Council of Jerusalem. And Paul had gone out after his first missionary journey dealing with the Galatian issue there, and he's come back to, to Jerusalem. And there even Peter, who had had that vision with Cornelius where he saw the tablecloth come down with all the unclean food, and God said, you can eat of everything because the law is no longer in effect. And Peter is now... Uh, a little embarrassed because he got he was hanging out with the uh, Gentiles and and e- eating uh, bacon and pork chops for breakfast every morning and and really enjoying it. But then when the Orthodox Jews came in, they they started uh, criticizing him, and so he was embarrassed and and he quit hanging out with the Gentiles. And Peter uh, Paul had to come in and just really ream him out. That's covered in uh, Galatians chapter two. And they had a council, and they had to decide, what are we going to do? And they recognized that the church is no longer Israel, that the Mosaic law is ended. It's no longer in effect. So this is crucial to understand prophecy, that God has a different plan and purpose for Israel than he does for church-age believers. Romans 11.25 
uh, summarizes a tremendous chapter. And Romans 11 is a central passage to understand the relationship of the Gentiles to the church, to uh, uh, to Israel, and to teach that there is yet a future for ethnic Israel in God's plan. And he comes to the conclusion here in verse uh, verse 25 of Romans 11. He's given this tremendous analogy of, uh, of the olive tree, which is the background for the slide. And the olive tree analogy is that the, you have a, an olive tree and the roots are the, really stand for the Abrahamic covenant. Remember in the Abrahamic covenant you had three elements, land, seed, and blessing, that God would bless everyone through Abraham and Abraham's seed. So it is from the fatness of that blessing that all peoples are blessed. So the Jews, as the natural olive tree that grew out of that root, participate in those blessings because of their direct relationship with Abraham. But because of their disobedience, uh, those natural branches are chopped off. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about, because otherwise I'd indicate loss of salvation. It's that they're removed. And that's what's happening today. They're, because of the hardness of Israel, their Jews are not responding to the gospel today. But what's being grafted in, in the place of natural Israel, are Gentiles. And the focus during this age is on the salvation of Gentiles who are wild olive branches being grafted into the uh, natural tree and partaking of the benefits of the root. They're sharing in the fatness of the root, which is the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. So Paul concludes by saying, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Mystery is a doctrine that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, something that was uh, kept quiet, kept in reserve. God did not reveal it until uh, the church age. And through the Apostle Paul, many of these mysteries, that is, previously unrevealed doctrines, uh, were, were revealed. So that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. In other words, he didn't want the Gentiles to get all bloated in, in arrogance, thinking, well, God just got rid of all you Jews, and now we get all the blessing. So he's, he's trying to, he doesn't want them to become arrogant and anti-Semitic. Uh, lest, he says, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until you know, it looks, it anticipates something that's coming. This goes until something happens, is the emphasis in the Greek there, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then that blindness is going to be reversed. And that's what verse 26 mentions. And so, that is, thus at that time when the partial blindness is removed, then all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is a specific plan that God has a a future plan for Israel. It is distinct from the plan of the church. And that leads us to the next important area of understanding, which is that God's plan for Israel involves it being the head and not the tail. Isaiah chapter 2 talks about the fact that in the kingdom, all the nations will come to the temple 
All the nations will come to the mountain to worship God together. But where do they go? Everyone in the world will go to Jerusalem, not Damascus, not Tehran, not Mecca, not Medina. They will all go to Jerusalem, and that is where the worship of God will be centered because it is a Jewish kingdom, a Davidic kingdom. It's not a, an Islam or a, a Muslim kingdom. God's plan for Israel involves it being the head, not the tail, and ruling over the nations during the millennial kingdom. Whereas the church, God's plan for the church involves a cadre of saved Jews and Gentiles who are now church-age believers where there's neither Jew nor Greek. That's not the point. They're all church-age. It involves a cadre of saved Jews and Gentiles who will rule and reign with him in the kingdom. This is the distinction in the plans and purposes for Israel and the church. Now, this gives us a timeline of, of uh, history. Back in the back on the left-hand side, you have the birth of Israel, that is the nation Israel, the coming of Christ, the cross, Christ's ascension, and then the judgment on the second temple in A.D. 70 when Israel is dispersed from the land. Actually, it didn't happen all at once. I'm going to come back, and I'm trying to figure out when I'm going to do this, but I need to do it soon, and I don't want to do it all on a Sunday morning, but probably in three or four weeks when we get to the end of uh, Revelation chapter 3 about that time, I'm going to start a special on uh, Tuesday and Thursday nights to fill in the gaps on the history of Israel, Jerusalem, and history and prophecy, and that would probably take two or three weeks to go through that. This is when you have the first dispersion. The temple's destroyed in 70 A.D. That's our benchmark date. But there's another. that's the first rebellion. There's another rebellion in 116 under Emperor Trajan. And then, the, then there's another rebellion in 135, the Bar Kokhba rebellion. But in all that, there still remains a, a, a remnant of Jews in the land. There's always been a presence of Jews in the land. They were never, ever totally removed from the land. And so the vast majority, though, are dispersed throughout the nations, throughout the world, as prophesied in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 and 29. This is known as the Diaspora, where they are dispersed throughout the nations. Then they begin to return, and they are regathered to the land so that there is a nation, a unregenerate nation, that has to be there at the beginning of the tribulation period. The tribulation doesn't begin with the rapture. The tribulation begins, according to Daniel chapter 9, when the Antichrist, the prince of the people who is to come, when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the nation Israel and brings peace to the Middle East. And I think as part of that, it will allow the Jews to rebuild the temple and to establish temple worship uh, on the Temple Mount. So that gives us our overview. There's a distinction between uh, Israel and the church. Now Israel, the Jews, are dispersed, but during the tribulation they will be regathered and first in, as unregenerate, then regenerate. What are the purposes of the tribulation? Four purposes of the tribulation help us to understand this distinction between Israel and the church. First of all, the purpose of the tribulation is to execute judgment on the wicked 
and on the rebellious nations who have both rejected Christ and rejected Israel. This is the great judgment on anti-Semitism by God during the uh, tribulation period. It is the culmination of judgments in history on unbelievers. So, of course, church-age believers would not be there. Second, it's there to demonstrate the inability of Satan to rule the planet. See, Satan wants to rule everything. He wants to be like God. To be God, he has to have peace and prosperity and order, and everything has to be functioning very smoothly. But as Lewis Berry Chafer pointed out many years ago, all of the evil and suffering and pain and death and chaos and wars and and uh, rebellions and terrorism, all of these things are simply testimony to the fact that Satan can't rule his kingdom very well. He can't bring peace in. He's going to try, and uh, the tribulation is going to finally demonstrate Satan's inability to pull off what he's trying to pull off in his rebellion against God. Third, it will provide a time for millions to be saved. Most of these rejected the gospel prior to the tribulation, and now they get one last chance, and they have to go through the wrath of the tribulation, but there will be millions saved. And it is a time of preparation for Israel's restoration and conversion. This is one of the most important aspects of the tribulation. As we'll see, it is Jewish in its emphasis. That's why it's called in the Old Testament the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob being a term used for Israel when they are operating according to the flesh and not following God. So it's a time of Jacob's trouble. These fourfold purposes for the tribulation indicate that it is something that is distinctive for Israel, not the church. So we must keep that distinction in mind. And then the last thing we want to cover this morning is Daniel's 70th week. This, to me, is one of the most remarkable, phenomenal prophecies in all of Scripture. The detail is just extraordinary, but it is foundational to so many different doctrines that we have to understand this. This is given in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. You might want to open your Bibles, make sure you're there, Daniel 9, 24 and following, and just highlight, underline, and mark some of the texts there. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people. Now, this is a information being given to Daniel. Who are, who's Daniel? Daniel is a Jew. Went out under the first deportation, 605 B.C., when, after Nebuchadnezzar had come and conquered Judea. He took a bunch of young men, uh, the, the sons of of the nobility, the aristocrats, the rulers in in Judea, and took them back to brainwash them, train them, prepare them to be the bureaucrats in Babylon. So the your people refers to who? The Jews. He's talking to Daniel. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. That's Jerusalem. And then there are six things listed here that that indicate the final purpose. To finish the transgression to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy, most holy place. None of these have been fulfilled yet. This is second coming fulfillment. 
It ends. Um, it makes an end of sin. It's a. It seals up vision. That means it brings all this prophecy to conclusion, and to anoint the most holy place. Verse 25, so you were to know, Daniel, and discern that from the issuing of a decree, that's your starting point, from the issuing of a decree decree to restore and rebuild, that is to rebuild the walls, not just the temple, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, let's talk about this time frame a minute. Seventy weeks would be how many days? Seventy times seven, 490 days. But we're really not talking about days here, not 24-hour days, because the text says 70 periods of seven, okay? Not 70 weeks, 70 periods of seven. So is this days, weeks, or years? Well, this is years. So it's 70 times seven would be 490 years. So what we have here is from the issuing of this decree until Messiah the Prince, there's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks, math time. Math test, pop quiz, 62 and 7 is how much? 69. So we're one week short, aren't we? Uh, that's why we call it Daniel's 70th week. We're one week short. Okay, so from the issuing of a decree until Messiah the Prince, that's when Jesus came, there would be 489 years, and then the 490th year, which, uh, I mean, yeah, right, the, uh, I mean, period of 490 uh, um Seventy weeks, four hundred ninety years, and then the, that last year, that last period of seven, would be the uh, tribulation, that last week. So after the, after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Verse twenty-six. Then after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. When did that happen? That happened at the crucifixion. So. From the issuing of this decree, whatever, whenever that was, until Messiah the Prince would come, there would be a period of, of 69 weeks or 483 years. Then you come to, uh, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And this comes at the end. You remember in verse 25 it said 7 weeks and then 62 weeks. So this would be at the end of that uh, 483rd year. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, when did that happen? A.D. 70, under Titus, the 10th Roman legion. The, who's the, who was the prince who came? It was Titus. Who were his people? The Romans. Okay, that tells us that part of this end-time scenario is going to relate to a, some sort of Roman uh, hegemony some sort of Roman or revived Roman empire. So the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happens after the Messiah is crucified. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. That refers to the destruction that occurred in A.D. 70. Then verse 27. Remember, we still have seven years of that last week out there. Verse 27 describes that. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Who's the he? The prince of the people who is to come. So this is a Roman or someone who comes out of the old Roman Empire. And he makes a firm covenant or a contract or a peace treaty with the many. Who are the many? These are the Jews. He will make a firm covenant with them for one week, seven years. That's part of where we get our time frame 
for the tribulation period. Seven years, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. That tells us that there is a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount during the tribulation period, and that sacrifices, the old Levitical sacrifices, priesthood, all that, will be resurrected and will be operational. Remember, they're unregenerate at that time. Not regenerate. And then at, the, at halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist will put a stop to all of that, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So he's going to dominate, he's going to desecrate and dominate the temple for the last three and a half years. This is what... Jesus warned about in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. I mentioned earlier, one of the signs was when you see this event happen, flee to the hills. Don't stop. Don't pack your bags. Don't do it. Just get out of Jerusalem and head to the mountains south in Judea and across the Jordan over into uh, Jordan, the area of Petra, Basra, that area. And that is where they, God will protect them. We have four options in history have been set forth for that decree. It's the last one mentioned in this list, the second decree of Artaxerxes Longomanus, which was given in 444 B.C. It was a decree given to Nehemiah to go back and finish rebuilding the city and to build the walls of Jerusalem to protect them from their enemies. So we know exactly when that took place. Uh, and it's, all of this is related to the sanctuary. Daniel 9.16, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. This was Daniel's prayer preceding the revelation of the timetable. Uh, he was praying that uh, God's wrath would be turned away from Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, that's the temple mount, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all those around us. This is part of his confession. And in verse 17 he says, So now our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications, and for thy sake, O Lord, let, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. In the background you see a picture of the rubble left over from the walls that were destroyed in AD 70. Now let's put this on a little timeline for you. The, the decree to restore took place, we know, on March the 5th, 444 B.C., when Artaxerxes told Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the, the walls. If you take the 7 and the 62, add them together, you have 69 weeks for Messiah the Prince to show up. On March the 30th, A.D. 33, there was a triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, according to Luke 19:28 to 40. That all has to do with Israel. But you see, 490 years were decreed, and we only have 483 years. Now, if you multiply that out, you have 173,880 days. That's on a 360-day year. They operated on a lunar calendar, Jewish calendar, still lunar calendar, 30-day months. So you take those 173,880 days and you go back and you uh, chart out the, the uh, number of days between March 5th, 444 B.C. 
to March 30th, AD 33, and it comes out to 173,880 days. See, God is precise. He's able to foretell to the minute when this would happen, when Messiah the Prince would enter into uh, Jerusalem. And it is at, uh, at that point that the timetable stopped. Then you have the destruction of the temple after that. You have the church age after that. But you still have this seven-year period hanging. And who's it for? According to Daniel 9, it is for you, your people, and your city. It's for the Jews. So when we come to the tribulation, and we talk about this distinction between the church and Israel, it's important because the seven, that seven-year period has a, a specific purpose For Israel, there has to be a shift back to an emphasis on Israel, the temple, all of those things. And it is then that God is going to, having brought the the Gentiles to their fullness, He's going to come back to Israel and all Israel will be saved according to Romans chapter 11. So that lays the foundation for understanding the rapture, its purpose, and its timing. Literal interpretation, premillennialism, Futurism and a distinction between Israel and the church. And we'll come back next time and we'll develop the rest of that uh, chart and that structure to understand the doctrine of the pre-trib rapture with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to to study these things, to come to a greater understanding of, of how you have mapped out prophecy and how you've mapped out future things and how you've mapped out history that we may have a confidence and a hope, a sure and certain hope, because we know what our destiny is. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins. Sin is what separates you from God. Sin is what separates all of us from God and puts us under condemnation. But when we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins, when we trust him, God imputes to us Christ's righteousness. We receive a free gift of that righteousness, and it's on the basis of Christ's righteousness that God justifies us, saves us, and accepts us as his own. This is your opportunity to make that yours. All you need to do is believe Jesus died for you. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge each of us, encourage us, strengthen us with what we studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.